The Sermon on the Mount begins with the section of the scripture called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, basically, Jesus is preaching. Remember, Jesus is sharing this message, this teaching with uh, believers. This is a message that's directed at his followers, his, his believers, and he's, he's saying in the Beatitudes, this is, when, when I come into your heart, these are the characteristics, these are the, 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 the things that will begin to happen in your life. There's, there's humility that grows, there's a hunger and a thirsting for righteousness. There's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a love for, for those who are persecuting you even though they're persecuting. There's joy even in the midst of persecution. And so we looked at, at the Beatitudes and the characteristics of a, of a Christian when they accept Jesus into our heart. And we, we have these characteristics not for the purpose of saying, well, look at us, we're better than you that are in the world, but we have these characteristics so that we can be better, as one of my friends said recently to me, so that we can be better for the world. It's not so that we are better than you and then the world, but, but we want to be like Jesus. We want to have these characteristics so that we can be better for the world. And that's what the second sermon was about, that we are the salt and the light of the earth and the world. The salt in that, in that we are here to, to, to delay the decay, the rotting of this world, to bring some sort of some health and, and value to this world, to show people that, that there is life still in Jesus. We're, we're the light of the world and that we're to bring good news and hope to the people that are that are wandering in in darkness and so we are better for the world sometimes we we can look at the beatitudes and we can we can look at this message and uh, uh, we can look at it from the standpoint of there's the world and thank goodness I am not like them and almost in our characteristics we say look I'm not you I'm a Christian I'm me it's kind of a, 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 a aggressive attitude I was in another country uh, a couple years ago I won't say which country it was, but I was in another country. And, and something I found very interesting is that this country does not mention Christmas at all amongst the Adventist people. They don't, they don't have any association with Christmas. In fact, they've removed all of Ellen White's references to Christmas out of their Ellen White books. They've removed them. And I was talking to a pastor and I said, I said why, why have you done this? And he said, well, because in this country it's predominantly uh, Roman Catholic and, and they're very into Christmas. And so we're different from them, but we want to make sure that people know that, that, that we're not them. Folks, that's not why we live for Jesus to make sure that, or to, we do certain things to make sure that that, that group knows that we're not them. We want to be better for them. And so that's why the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to live differently and, and, and to, to be salt and light so that we can be better for them. Not so that we can say, look what you're doing wrong, look what you're doing wrong, but we want to be better for you and be a blessing to you. And that brings us to our text today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verses 17 and 18. And in Matthew chapter 5, what we're looking at today is, is then what Jesus teaches us about the law and about the standard of Christian living. What is the standard of Christian living? And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, the Bible says to us, Jesus said, spoke to his followers, and he speaks to us now, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth has passed away, not one dot, not one iota, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you've been to an evangelistic meeting within the faith community of the Adventists ever, you have heard these texts. And, and this, the sermon that you've heard these texts associated with is the Sermon on 
the, the eternal value of the law or the immutability of the law. You've heard these texts used in reference to, to defending that the Sabbath is still the Sabbath. Do you remember hearing those when you've gone to meetings and, and, and we get up and we say the Sabbath is still the Sabbath and it has not been changed. And here's this text from Matthew chapter five that says, not one jot or one tittle for my King James brothers and sisters or not one iota or dot for, for uh, some of the rest of you, the new, new International Versions, not one bit of it has been changed. And we, we use this text to, to prove the absoluteness of the law. The absoluteness of the law. Unfortunately, I think we've done a disservice to these texts. And I don't say that pejoratively because I've used those texts in that way as well. But but as I was studying, I realized we've done a disservice to these texts because when Jesus spoke these words, folks, it was not in order to prove that the law was eternal. That's not why Jesus spoke these words. Jesus didn't speak these words in order to, to, to prove that the seventh day is the Sabbath and the absoluteness of that. There's, there's plenty of other evidence in the Bible. Jesus didn't preach these words for that reason. But since we've used them so often for those reasons, we might have missed the deeper exegetical and, and contextual value of these passages. So what was Jesus' primary purpose of, of sharing these words? Well, let us think about Jesus' ministry. What was Jesus, Jesus often accused of in his ministry? He was often accused of being a lawbreaker. He was accused of being a, a blasphemer of going against God's teachings and, and trying to change God's laws. And so when, when he's been accused of this, what he's doing when he says these words is he's simply saying to his followers, I know that some people are gonna accuse me of what I'm about to say, that I'm against God's law or I'm challenging God's law, but I wanna tell you that, that that's not what I'm doing. He's saying, I understand that the law of God is forever. I understand the law of God exists forever and, and is, is absolute in its way, but I want you to understand what the real law of God is about and not what you've observed and not what you've been taught in your life. You see, Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners, of being a blasphemer, of being a, a lawbreaker. And he was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners. This was another way of saying to Jesus, you might remember that, that, uh, that they, they, he was eating and dining with some people and they said, oh, look at Jesus, he's a friend of sinners. This was a way of them saying, Look, he's soft on sin. He's soft on sin. In our modern culture, you know how we say it? If someone is preaching grace a lot or sharing grace a lot, we say, you know what? They're, they're trying to offer cheap grace or they don't really value the law. Sad that, that throughout the ages, whenever someone is being graceful to someone, someone accuses them of devaluing the law. But Jesus didn't devalue the law. In fact, he, he says, I'm taking the law to a whole nother level and putting it in its right place, in its right context. And so Jesus sitting before the follower says, I know what people are going to say. What I am teaching and how I am living is going against God's law. But don't listen to them. I know God's law is immutable. It won't change. But what I'm going to show you is actually the true foundation of God's law and how to live by God's standards. Now, one of the reasons why we've tried to use this verse as a way to, 
to prove that the law exists forever is because verse 17 says, Jesus, in verse 17, Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but, but to fill, fulfill the law. And some people read that and say, oh, to fulfill the law, that means to, to bring it to an end. And they'll say, oh, look, the law is no longer important. And that's not what Jesus is saying either. The, the word fulfill there in the Greek is actually, the, the word actually means to, to fill up or to make full or to make complete. So Jesus says, I'm not nullifying the law. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it more complete, to give it completeness in your lives and in your eyes. He's going to teach them the fullness of the law. And what he's going to tell them is that the standard of the law is no longer do or don't. It's no longer this action or that action. But the standard of the law is now Jesus' perfect righteousness. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 tells us that Jesus kept the law on our behalf perfect because we could not keep the law perfect for ourselves. And so Jesus is going to say, I'm going to show you now what it means to, to be a perfect law keeper. And then he says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of us have read that verse, chapter five, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that text maybe scares us a little bit. Anyone else ever thought to themselves, man, I know that they were really good rule followers. If I have to be a better rule follower than them, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make this? And then the, the next list that Jesus goes through, Jesus begins to, to give a list of things, of standards of living for the Christian. And, and, and if we're reading this text in the context of, man, I've got to do better and be better, then it can be quite discouraging. Jesus goes on to say, not only is it not about murder and violence towards another person, don't even get angry with them because anger begins in the heart. And he says it's not about sin and, and adultery. The sin isn't just the adultery, but it begins in the heart with lust. He talks about the sin of honesty. And he says, be such an honest person in your heart that you can say yes, and your yes is your yes, and your no is your no. Jesus teaches on the sin of trying to get even with someone who has wronged you. And he says, don't try to get even with someone by your own ways and by your own methods, but, 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 but love them, forgive them. Go the extra mile for those that are actually against you and are actually have done wrong towards you. Jesus talks about the heart of the matter in regards to our enemies that, that as Christ has loved everyone, we also ought to love our enemies. And all these teachings were in contrast to the righteousness of, of the Pharisees. They were all in contrast to the righteousness of the Pharisees. Because what Jesus is saying is the law is not about do or don't, but the law is about what is going on in your heart, what is taking place in your heart. In order to understand this text more completely, we have to understand what the righteousness of the Pharisees was. Turning your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, we're going to look at, this is a, is a story that Jesus was telling, and we're just going to look at the very first part of the story. Jesus tells there in the book of Luke chapter uh, 18, verses 10 through 12. And he, this illustrates the righteousness of the Pharisees, or how they saw the Pharisees. 
Jesus told the story. Two men went up onto the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is the Pharisee's definition of righteousness. The Pharisee in this parable defines his own righteousness as by his actions. I fast twice a week, so I'm righteous. I give tithes and offerings, therefore I'm righteous. I don't commit adultery, therefore I'm righteous. The Pharisee thinks that his actions are what make him right or righteous before God. Then Jesus states it another time very clearly in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, we come to a place in the scriptures in which are, are known as the woes. These are, these are the, the moments where Jesus is, is condemning some of the religious actions of the day, and he's saying to the Pharisees, woe, are you, woe unto you, and woe unto you, and woe unto you. He does it seven times, and he, and he lists out actions that they do and points out that they're neglecting the most important things in their life. And in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. He's saying no matter what the outside looks like, if the inside is not clean, then it's of no value. How many of you have dishwashers in this room? Anyone have a dishwasher? Not your spouse, but I mean an actual physical dishwasher. So, so we have a dishwasher in our house, and, and uh, it's a pretty good dishwasher. I like it. We just got a new one because our other one broke, and, and this one's so quiet. I like it. Uh, but we have this dishwasher, and some of you may have had this experience. You put the dishes in the dishwasher, you wash them, and then you go to take them out and you look and they all look clean and they smell clean and there's a little sparkle you know off of them. Maybe you use Cascade and there's that little sparkle off of them. And, uh, and then you pick them up and you turn them over and on the inside they've got food. And then you remember, I should have done what my wife told me and rinsed them before I put them in the dishwasher. Anyone else had that experience before? Thank you, Scott, for your honesty. All the rest of you, I know that you can confess to God later. Um, we've had that experience, right? Or we've had this experience where, we, where we've, we, we've told the kids, hey, go put the dishes away, get them out of the dishwasher, and then we go and we go to get out a bowl and we, or a cup and we realize, man, it's got all this stuff in it and we know who unloaded the dishwasher. The kids, because they at least put it away. I just leave it in there and pretend, don't tell Christina that it's still dirty. But, but the thing is, is when that, when, that, when that bowl is upside down, it still looks clean, it looks pristine, it looks like it's been washed but when you turn it over and look at the inside, no matter how the outside looks, it's of no value because what's inside is still dirty. That's what Jesus is basically saying in, in his century, and now I'm saying it in our century. He then goes on to say, he then goes on to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful. 
The most beautiful cemetery I've ever been to in my life is Forest Lawn in Southern California. Any of you been to Forest Lawn Cemetery, Southern California? I remember going there with my parents. It was a Sabbath afternoon activity that we went on. It was probably a day like this, and we decided to go to, to Forest Lawn. What a great Sabbath afternoon outing to a grave or a cemetery. But at this cemetery, they have a lot of historical things, and a lot of famous people are buried there. And, and I think there was a special display of the painting of the Lord's Supper, and there was a, a statue of David or something. There was, there was some things there. But this place is beautiful and it's pristine. I mean, the, 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 the grass is kept uh, immaculate and, and there's flowers everywhere and, and the birds are singing. And, and this looks like one of the most lovely places around, the cemetery. But what would happen if we opened that cemetery up, opened those graves up? Would it, would it lose its pleasantness? And that's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. He said, you look like a really nice cemetery, but if we were to open this cemetery up, there'd be nothing but bones and, and uncleanness. You hypocrites. You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Outwardly, you appear righteous, he says, but you are within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So when Jesus told us that our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, he wasn't actually saying that you have to do a better job at the outward actions. That's not what he was actually saying. What he was talking about is not about the outward actions, but what goes on inside the heart. What goes on inside the heart. We can read through Matthew 5, this section of Matthew 5, and we can read those things and we can become discouraged or we can, we can try harder and harder and, and we miss the whole point of what Jesus is saying. He's saying the Pharisees worry about how they look on the outside. They worry about the actions that they are or aren't doing. But what I'm asking you to worry about, he says, is, is what's going on in your heart? What's going on inside your heart? Jesus reemphasizes this at the end of this section of the Sermon on the Mount when he bookends it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says to, to us, you therefore must be perfect. I mean, that's a strong word. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 20, Jesus says, your righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees. In verse 48, he says, this righteousness is, is a perfection. Being perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What is the difference? What is the difference between God and the Pharisees? It is what goes on in the heart. It is not about the singular action of adultery. It's about what goes on in the heart before you even get to that face. It's not about the singular action of violence. It's what goes on in the heart before you even get to that place. It's not about what goes on, uh, it's not about about uh, your promises, but it's what goes on in your heart before you even get to that place where you make the promise. What Jesus is describing is this. He's saying, if I live like the Pharisees, if we live like the Pharisees, then we measure whether or not I'm saved by the outward actions of my life, by the outward conditions of my life. But if I'm perfect like the Father in heaven, then I, me- then I, then I am now living my life, I'm living the outward actions of my life are an example of my love for Jesus. It's either this, I am saved because I'm keeping the outward actions or I'm saved because my heart has been changed by Jesus and now I keep the law because I love Jesus and I accept the law as the proper standard of living for the Christians. For the Pharisee, 
Law-keeping is the means of salvation. For the Christian, the true follower of Jesus Christ, law-keeping is the result of salvation. There is no other way, folks, no other way. Now, the question always comes up when we talk about this, when we say, it's not about what you do, it's not about what you do. People say, yeah, I, I understand that you're not lost, I mean, you're not saved by your actions, but, but you can be lost by your lack of actions. Well, if you're not doing those actions, then it's not because, you're not lost because of lack of doing the actions, you're lost because of what's going on in the heart. The lack of the outward actions is because of what's going on as the lack of what is going on in the heart. The other people say, well, if we tell people not to focus on the actions and just to focus on the relationship and the love, then, then this actually lowers the standard for Christian living. But I would tell you that this actually raises the standard of Christian living. And here's why I would say that. Some of you are really disciplined people. You're, you're clerics. Elder Watts is here, and his nephew, Dwight, is one of my mentors. And Dwight has a routine. He is a cleric person. He gets up at the same time every morning. He does his devotional the same way every morning. He's been reading utmost for his highest every day since 1986. He has it marked there in his thing. He runs 3.1 miles five days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Sabbath, he doesn't run. Sunday, he runs 6.2 miles. He is a cleric. He is a very disciplined person. Guess what? I'm not. Go look at my, don't look at my car afterwards, but if you were, you would see that that, that is not, not me, not that disciplined. Some of you are so disciplined that, that if God says to do this, I'm going to do this. If God says to do this, I'm going to do this. And you have that discipline in your life, and you're able to kind of control those things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're relying upon Jesus Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're dependent upon Jesus Christ. When we live to the righteousness of the Pharisees, we maybe can fool ourselves into thinking that we are okay. That's what the Pharisees have done. But when we rely upon, when we have the perfection of God, it makes us fully dependent upon God because it becomes a matter of the heart. And guess what the Bible tells me about the matter of the heart? Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10 and Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16, they both say this. Two times in the book of Hebrews, this is written. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. In other words, what the Bible tells us is if the law is going to truly become a matter of our heart, a matter of, our, of what's going on inside of us, the only one that can put it there is the Lord, the only one. No longer does it become about me controlling what's outside, but it becomes about me surrendering to Jesus so that he can change what's on the inside. So that he can change what's on the inside. This makes me more dependent upon Jesus because I can do an outward action and fool some of you. But I can't fool God with what's going on inside my heart. And so if I'm going to be moved to keep the law by the love of God, it's about me surrendering and becoming more and more dependent upon Jesus. God writes his law in our hearts. Our hearts are not changed by our law keeping. Our hearts are changed by Jesus. Another way to look at this is that you could be keeping all 10 commandments today as they list them there in Exodus 20. But if it's not a result 
of full surrendering to Jesus. And it's not because your heart has been so deeply touched by Jesus that you're just responding to his love. You are still lost. But if you're all, keeping all Ten Commandments because Jesus is in your heart, you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. You are being perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect because God's come into your heart, because God's touched your heart. For me, this challenges me at a whole nother level because now I no longer begin to examine the outward things I do, but I, but I begin to look at those moments in which I realize what's going on in my heart. Let me give you a quick example. So when I was in college, I had this friend, and uh, we all probably have friends like this that aren't the best influence on our lives. But when I was in college, computers were, were starting to become a regular thing. I didn't have a computer at home. Going to college, that was the first time I, I had a computer. And, and I have this computer in my, in my dorm room, and my friend discovers that you can send things that aren't very appropriate over the uh, email or internet or whatever. And I have this friend that, that used to send us these things over the, and none of you try this at home, please, but used to send us these, these things that weren't very appropriate, and he'd send us these things, and it would have a link. Hey, he'd say, hey, check out this, click on this link and check it out. Well, what he wanted you to do was open it up in the computer lab and then, you know, hopefully embarrass you in front of everybody. That was his goal. I know, wonderful person. But I had learned at this point, by this point in time, that whenever Chris sends me an email that says, hey, check out this link, never check out that link. But I'm sitting there in my room, and what is temptation? Temptation is tempting, right? I mean, that's what, that's what it is. It's tempting. And I'm sitting there in my room by myself. I get this email. It says, hey, Chad, check out this link. And I'm thinking to myself, I probably shouldn't check out this link. But I'm there by myself. No one's around. No one sees me. No one knows what I'm doing. I think, eh, maybe I'll just look for a second. And so I click on the link. Right as I click on the link, you know what I hear? Keys. My roommate's coming in the room. Thank goodness the internet was slow back then. It's not like this, young people, it's not like this five-second thing, you know? Now if it's not up in five seconds, I'm like, why is this so slow? You know, back then, I'm, it, it was, I was so glad it wasn't slow. It was like taking forever to load. I'd seen nothing. But I clicked real quick, clicked out of that. My friend walks in, my roommate walks in. Hey, Scott, what's going on? Hey, uh, what are you doing? Just hanging out. He didn't know anything. Now, let me ask you this question. If the law is only about the action of what I see with my eyes or the lust that's in my heart, or I mean, or the, or the, or the, the action of some sort, then... then then I didn't see anything, so I didn't, I didn't sin. I'm good to go. I clicked out of it. I saw nothing. But if the law is about what's in my heart, then it changes it to a whole nother level. Because I had clicked on that. I, I had wanted to see it. The, the decision had been made in my heart. The decision had been made in my heart. It actually elevates it. And so no longer am I saying, well, I didn't do the thing, so do the action, so I'm, so I'm safe. I now go, Jesus, I need you to work on my heart. 
and change my heart because I know what was in there. And it makes me more reliant upon Jesus. I didn't do this. I don't do this, so I'm okay. No, Jesus, what's in my heart? When we begin to examine things as Jesus examined them, when, Je- when we begin to live as Jesus called us to live, in, in, in response to that, we become more and more dependent upon Jesus. These texts we've taught, and I started the sermon by stating that, that we often teach these texts by, by demonstrating that they show us the absoluteness of the law and the absolute need to keep the law, that the law is eternal, that the law is forever. But what I have discovered when I studied this passage of Scripture is that what it actually shows me is my absolute need of my perfect Jesus to save me and to give me a new heart. Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you have the power to give us a new heart. And that as we have new hearts, we, we will see the standard of living and say, yes, that's the way I want to live. We won't say, well, I didn't do that, so I'm safe, or I did do this, so I'm, I'm safe. We'll, we'll now say, Jesus, what's, what's in my heart? And we'll surrender to you, the only one who can change us and give us a new heart. So Jesus, I pray for each one of us, as we think about the law, as we think about the standard of living, Lord, may we not measure it by the, what we have done or haven't done, but may we measure it by our daily surrender to the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for each one of us, myself and each one in this room, that you will fulfill your promise in Jeremiah, you'll fulfill your promise in the book of Hebrews, book of Ezekiel, that you will give us a new heart. We thank you for fulfilling that promise in us that we may be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. In your name we pray, amen.